La Rui Productions presents The Great Unlearning, a courageous memoir about one woman's bold journey to mend her broken past. Read for you by me, the author, Mary La. For this first ever episode, I will talk about the introduction to The Great Unlearning that I titled Squirming Out of My Comfort Zone followed by reading the first story in the book titled, The Runaway. Why did I title the introduction, Squirming Out of My Comfort Zone? Well, I survived some pretty traumatic, life-altering experiences in my formative and adolescent years. And it became obvious to me in my 40s how my childhood wounding bled into my motives for some of the disastrous decisions I made as a teenager and adult. While following my curiosity about the early stages of my wounding and how it shaped my view of the world, I discovered Photoshop and started creating art around my devastating experiences in the form of conceptual self-portrait photography. I then approached writing about my traumatic childhood very cautiously with the understanding that it could rear up and bite me, which it did many times during the two years it took me to complete this book. I relived much of the anguish I had previously suffered by doing so. But those experiences have finally become my past. In learning the reasons for having developed self-destructive coping mechanisms, I could finally let them go. And by confronting and unlearning old ways of being that no longer served me or anyone around me, I was able to make some sense of the life I have lived so far. During the creation of this book, I was able to uncover the roots of my suffering, the origins of my values, and irrational self-perceptions that kept getting me into trouble. Fully embracing the memories of my past healed some of my deepest cuts and awakened me to the beautiful potential in allowing myself to be vulnerable. Telling my stories has also provided me with freedom from shame and regret for anything I did or did not do. Writing and creating art opened a door to healing that could never be closed again. While the great unlearning is a safe harbor for the most challenging and painful stories in my life, this book also contains inspiring stories, and self-portraits which often illustrate my cathartic processes in breaking through to living a life of healthy, value-driven choices, joyous purpose, and self-love. So, I'm squirming out of my comfort zone by sharing my incredible true stories and art, setting myself up for criticism, judgment, and rejection. I've never felt so vulnerable in all my life.
But here is the really great thing. By sharing my stories and creating the art to accompany each story, I am living in a freedom I never thought was possible. Well worth the risk. So welcome to my uncensored journey of my resilient success story. It is my intention that my memoir will offer readers courage and permission to take a similar leap of faith into bold exploration of their own life-defining experiences so they can bravely examine what it is that prevents expression of their most authentic self and to take creative risks for what they love and believe in. With creativity a continuous source of healing for me, I know it can be for others too. Some part of my story might be yours as well. And if you are someone who has experienced trauma, this book is for you. With the great unlearning, may you find yourself in a perfect environment to unlearn and be guided onto a triumphant path to healing. Now, let me read to you The Runaway. Part 1. Remembering The Runaway My father asked my five brothers and sisters and I to line up against the wall in the dining room. He had something important to tell us. The five o'clock news blared from our giant box of a TV as two reporters had an emotional conversation about a 19-year-old girl named Patricia who had been kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army. Although to me... What my father was about to say was far worse. He sat down in one of our rickety wooden dining chairs, landing with his elbows on his knees. My father was only weeks into recovering from a second heart attack, an experimental triple-bypass heart surgery, and a consequent infection from a tainted blood transfusion, all after just turning 40. Silently looking up at us with a furrow in his brow as deep as the resentment I had brewing for being a kid in my crappy world, he bought himself a few moments by lighting up a Paul Mall non filter cigarette and taking a long, slow drag. After picking off a piece of tobacco from his tongue while holding in the smoke that would eventually kill him, the muscles in his jaw pulsated while billows of smoke streamed through his flared nostrils like an angry bull. Then, in a choking voice, he finally spoke. I have some bad news for you guys. Your mother left on a long vacation, and I don't know if she's coming back. My mother had walked out on our family of eight to go to Hawaii with a guy named Bob. Her timing was horrendous. She was done. She didn't say goodbye, I love you, good luck, or anything. 
The second eldest of six kids at 14, I already had a hundred holes in my heart, had not yet won her love, and now felt clear I never would. This was the beginning of my childhood hell breaking loose. It was many years before my mother told my younger sister. She had made special sack lunches for us on the day she left, each containing a rare and coveted Twinkie. She said she believed it would be the last time she would ever do this chore, confessing that if she didn't leave when she did, someone would have gotten hurt or killed. I've often wondered if she was one of those mothers who could have snapped, perhaps making headlines by driving a six kids off a cliff buckled into our seats. With our mother never having been a source of positive, loving guidance in our lives, there was a general sense of elation from my siblings, the youngest being six, who were thrilled to have our fun-loving father all to themselves. I took the news differently and felt personally abandoned without a lick of motherly guidance about boys or how to take care of myself. The numbness that crept in behind my eyes would cloud every decision I'd make for the next 20 years. I didn't like much about myself in those days and feeling like a victim was lonely and quite angry with no healthy way to express it. My already meager self-esteem and poor self-confidence made me a bright and shiny target for bullies and easy prey for parasitic exploiters who take advantage of people lacking moral guidance or boundaries. I began gravitating to any person or group that would give me attention and soon chose to numb out with alcohol, drugs, and the wrong crowds. With many challenging and uncomfortable experiences awaiting me, I took near-fatal risks and made uninformed decisions with disastrous consequences that I've kept secret until now. My siblings and I didn't band together as some families do under circumstances like these. For me, life became an irritating game of competitive and chaotic musical chairs, with someone always coming in last, missing out on a safe place to land and losing their place in line for the limited support available. Despite my father's physical weakness and fatigue, he rallied us with pep talks about the importance of family and sticking together. He dubbed our motherless clan the Monroe Brothers, the origin of which is unclear, but to this day, if any of us kids need help in any way, the Monroe Brothers will mobilize to help. Doing his best to make this unstable time fun for us, he named our kitchen the Starlight Cafe and delegated all of us jobs to keep the house running as best we could. Floundering in a hormonally driven rebellious phase, I didn't want much to do with the family bonding, preferring instead to zone out while listening to Pink Floyd's new album, Dark Side of the Moon. 
or smoking my father's cigarettes in the bathroom while blowing the smoke up into the fan to avoid being caught. My father began dating a wiry, chain-smoking woman named Iris, who was often in the house, and who stabbed us all in the back with her deceitful behaviors, resulting in our referring to her as Iris the Bitch. She was mean-spirited and didn't appear to like children. When I turned 16, Iris told me if I moved out, my father would have enough money to get another life-saving heart surgery. She also asked my older brother, Alan, to leave. I later learned there was no such surgery in store for him. She just wanted fewer kids receiving the attention she coveted from my father. Within a few months, as 11th grade began, I received a GED, which meant I had completed high school and I moved into a studio apartment. After lying my way into a job as a secretary at a legal firm, I later learned it was the same firm that was representing my mother in her nasty divorce from my father. My father realized he couldn't run the house and manage four remaining children with his current state of health and finances. His Social Security and GI benefits weren't enough to support a family while paying my mother alimony. He couldn't go back to work as a grocery store manager because of his poor health and tried mowing lawns for our neighbors, but nearly collapsed with fatigue in doing so. At this point, he had me ask my mother to move back in to take care of my younger brothers and sisters, which she did, bringing along her new husband, Nicholas, a Frenchman who was an engineer at Lockheed, when she and Nicholas moved in, my father spent a couple of weeks living in his 15-year-old Lincoln Continental, essentially homeless, before moving in with Iris the Bitch, after which he filed for bankruptcy to wipe out his medical bills. On Tuesdays, my father would make the rounds, picking up all us kids, and we'd eagerly pile into the squeaky cream-colored ship of a Lincoln for our weekly Big D Day adventures. The D stood for donuts with Dad. He was loving, goofy, compassionate, and very kind. On one such day, my sister Anne spilled an entire soda in the back seat of his car, at which my father nonchalantly waved his hand in the air from the driver's seat and without looking back at her simply said, Don't worry about it, honey bun. It'll soak in. During this period, when my father had one of his frequent hospitalizations for heart failure, my mother stormed into his hospital room and yanked the oxygen off his face, exclaiming, You can't buy love with donuts. But our father did not buy love with donuts. He bought us donuts while he was loving us. At 20, I made the decision to move to Hawaii, wanting some distance from the brutal consequences of my teenage years in California. Stopping by the family home to say goodbye to my siblings, I noticed a frame cover of Time magazine on the wall between their two bedrooms which featured a grim photo of dead bodies sprawled out on a walkway in a field 
the image of a large rusty vat of purple liquid filling the foreground contained the words, The Cult of Death, and referred to an article about the Jonestown Massacre. When I asked my mother about it, she mumbled something about lack of gratitude and how we take life for granted, which seemed to confirm that moving away was the right thing for me to do. Although I also felt guilty for not staying to protect my younger siblings. I think, however, that if I had stayed, I might have gotten hurt, or worse. Over the next few years, while I was enjoying my life in Hawaii, my mother kicked the remaining kids out of the house, one by one, typically by the time they were nearing 16. My sister Vicky was notified to get out by a note on the bathroom mirror written in red lipstick. Anne's turn came when she gave thanks to God instead of my mother's husband, Nicholas, for putting dinner on the table. After grabbing Anne's plate of spaghetti, then dumping it out onto the front lawn, my mother gave her back the empty plate and said, Here, have God fill it. My brother Eddie, with no place to go when he was told to leave, slept either in my mother's car in the driveway or in the snack shack at the Little League baseball field. My brother George was the last kid in the house when my mother went through the legal process of emancipating him at 14 so she would no longer be held responsible or be required to provide him with any support. Thankfully, all five siblings eventually found their way into lifestyles and relationships that kept them at a safe distance from our mother's reach. The day before my father's 55th birthday, he had his last heart attack at his home in California, dying shortly after arriving at the hospital. In my mid-twenties at the time, this news arrived on the morning of an anatomy and physiology final at the University of Hawaii, where I was a pre-med major with the goal of becoming a doctor. There you have it, a good introduction to some of my family history which set me up for the hair-raising and heart-rendering experiences coming up later in future podcasts. If you'd like to see the self-portraits I created to accompany what I read today, you'll find them on my blog at mary-law.com. Or better yet, while you're on my website, buy a copy of The Great Unlearning. There are over 50 surreal self-portraits and stories in there. Visit m-a-r-y-l-a.com. If you purchase a book via my website, I will send you an autographed copy while they last, or you can buy it on Amazon. If you have a question or comment about a story or my art, please email me at mary at mary-law.com. There is a good chance I'll mention your comment or address your question in a future podcast. And I have a free gift for you. By signing up for my engaging newsletter with inspiring new content, information on upcoming events and future projects, 
you will receive the audio version of my book of poetry, Fear Means Go, read by me. I also play classical guitar on this recording, as I did for today's podcast. In the next episode, I will read the next story in the book titled The Unloved Daughter. It's about when I realized that my mother's unloving actions created a dysfunctional lens that I looked at the world through and what I did to start shifting that lens. This is Mary La. Thanks for listening.